Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend, we have the third Sunday of Easter in year C. Now, I mentioned falsely last week, and I apologize, that we would be in the book of Acts for seven consecutive weeks. It's actually only six. I fell for the uh, calendar I have. It has the Ascension of Our Lord, a Thursday night service, listed out in the middle just as though it's a, a regular service, and that is also an Acts chapter 1 reading instead of an Old Testament text. So it's six weeks in a row, plus ascension. And in those seven readings then, instead of having an Old Testament, we have from the Acts of the Apostles, which is a history part, certainly. Most of the New Testament is still history as well, but very much acts, acts like a history book, as some of those early books of the Old Testament do as well. So we're going to jump in with Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. The epistle text is going to be from Revelation chapter 5, optional verses 1 through 7, but all the churches would read 8 through 14. So maybe all the chapter, or maybe just the second half. And then the gospel reading, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, but again an option, the pastor can seek to add on verses 15 through 19 to the end of that reading as well. So two optional readings, which makes for a longer set of readings for us this weekend, especially with a 22-verse start in the first reading. So We'll probably see a lot of our churches skip the optional text just to keep the readings a little shorter, but some may not. So I'm going to go ahead and cover it all, as I usually do, just so that you have the opportunity to see more of Scripture, and in case your pastor chooses to preach from one of those optional readings as well. We start in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. For the context for this one, remember that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed because he was preaching about Christ. So the first Christian martyr, if we don't count Jesus himself, killed for his faith in Christ. And then in Acts chapter 8, we see that Saul continues to press that, and chapter 9, we see it all the more, with what we typically call the road to Damascus. First paragraph is verses 1 through 9. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So we get the beginning of the conversion account of Saul. And I do want to highlight something from this first. Oftentimes Christians today have the impression that Saul is his name before his conversion and that after he converts to being Christian, his name is changed to Paul. That's actually not true. There is no name change given for Saul, Paul in Scripture. 
Instead, it is believed to be that Saul was his Jewish name, a reference to the first king of Israel, King Saul, while Paul was his Roman name. So he's a Roman citizen, as we know from elsewhere in his writings. And then he's given that Roman name as well. He's from Tarsus, and Paul was the name of a famous Roman general that came from the city of Tarsus. So he's named after two great men in their own communities, their own societies. Saul, however, as we get back to the text, is still seeking to kill Christians. He's seeking threat and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to be given to the churches in Damascus, the synagogues, and they call the Jewish equivalent of a church, so that if they find any Christians, they don't call them Christians just yet, that they would bring them bound back to the city of Jerusalem for trial, which could lead to them being imprisoned. It could lead to them being killed, like Stephen was. So the idea of the way is mentioned here, and I don't want to pass over that either. The way is what Christians were first called. It won't be until Acts chapter 11 that we see the disciples first called Christians in the city of Antioch, and it's an insult. Basically means little Christ. They follow Christ. Let me look at these. Look at these fools. It's basically the picture. We called ourselves the way at first because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that was a distinguishing trait, a distinguishing mark. But eventually the name changed. It was at first an insult, and it comes to stick on the Christians later. They meant it as derogatory. You little Christ, you. But we said, that's actually what we want to be. We are followers of Jesus. And so that name ended up taking over. Much the same way that Lutherans are called Lutherans today. The, The title of Lutheran was a derogatory mark. It was an insult that the Catholic Church levied against those who followed Luther. And eventually it just stuck. Luther didn't want the people who liked his writings to be called Lutherans, named after him. He wanted them to be known as followers of Jesus. So we have to keep that distinction even to this day, that we are followers of Christ. Lutheran is a name that's stuck, and we don't mind it, but first and foremost we are Christian. And the idea of being Lutheran just means that as there are so many interpretations of what Jesus taught out there, that this particular way of looking at the scripture is what we believe to be true. And so Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Lutheran, all these different things, it is helpful to have signifiers, words that you can recognize and say, oh, you're a Lutheran. I guess I understand roughly what you believe and maybe we can talk about it some more. So as we see the text here in verse 3, he's on his way to Damascus. He's seeking to arrest these members of the way when suddenly Jesus Christ himself reveals himself to Paul, to Saul. And he falls to the ground and he hears this loud voice comes from this bright light. He falls to the ground. So this, this light is Jesus. Another one of those I am statements, I am the light of the world. We even read in the book of Revelation that there isn't going to be a sun, S-U-N, in paradise because we will have Jesus and he will give light to his 
holy city to his people. Not hard to picture that then here, like the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured and he radiated light. So it is for this moment as well. And he speaks to Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul, rightly, in the state of humility that he now finds himself in, literally humbled, lowered to the ground, he he says, who are you, Lord? This is not to say he believes the one speaking to him necessarily is his God. What it means is it's a title of respect, just as you might call a king a Lord. Or a wife might call her husband her Lord. We see Sarah say that of Abraham in the Old Testament. It's a thing of respect. And he's showing that respect to someone he knows is greater than himself in this moment. And the voice reveals himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice that, right? If you persecute the people of Christ, you are persecuting him. Why? This is that marriage analogy helpful here. The idea that in marriage you become united to your spouse. The two become one flesh. And so we are the bride of Christ. If you persecute the bride of Christ, she is one flesh with Jesus. You are persecuting him directly. Christ takes ownership of us as his people. And so as Saul persecutes one of us, he persecutes Jesus. That also will match with Matthew chapter 25, the judgment that Jesus speaks about, that the ones who have done the little things, feeding someone, clothing, uh, visiting a person in prison or who is sick, they've done those things for him, or they haven't done those things for him if they haven't done them at all. He now instructs Saul. He doesn't give him the chance to respond. He just instructs him, go. Enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. Saul's companions don't know what to do. They heard the voice. Whether they understood the voice is not told to us here by Luke. Do they understand the words of Jesus or did it just sound to them as some sort of audible noise that was untranslatable? Some of the times where we hear the voices from heaven in the gospel accounts, the people, sometimes the people seem to recognize someone was speaking and other times they're just like, oh, it thundered. So who knows how it is here either. This is not enough here to specify. They hear something, but they see nothing. Saul heard and saw. Then they have to take him by hand into the city of Damascus because he cannot see. He is struck blind. It's an interesting picture when you think about it because Saul was on his way in power, in earthly power. He was going towards Damascus, where he, with his hands, was going to bind people and bring them away from that city. And instead, Saul now will come humbly into the city of Damascus, not eating anything, not even able to walk in his own straight line, but having to be led. So so greatly has the Lord humbled him in this moment. So for three days he has no sight, and he fasts, he does not eat or drink. That brings us to the second paragraph, verses 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So we meet another Christian. I guess our first Christian of the text today. We meet a Christian, Ananias, who's living in that city of Damascus, which is, uh, from time to time in history, it's been the capital of the nation of Syria. Right now it's still part of Rome. And Ananias is called to by Yahweh. God calls to him, or I guess we could say Jesus calls to him. The Trinity calls to him. And Ananias responds, Here I am, Lord. I just want to point out, this is a common response, a common way it seems culturally even perhaps to just answer another person as we see Abraham speak that way to his son Isaac in Genesis 22 as an, an example of it. But I want to say that it is also spoken to God. As God calls out to his people, there are times where his people respond with this, and it's a short list, and it's quite a list of saints. Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, and Isaiah. Those are five really strong biblical men in terms of strength of their faith. And Ananias, number six, and the only one in the New Testament. So it puts him in some nice company. I don't know if we really need to read into it, but it's there as a biblical study for us. So God tells Ananias to go to a specific place, to a specific man's house, to find a specific man, not the one who owns the house, but a visitor named Saul of Tarsus. These little details are important, by the way. They are an apologetics tool. I'm going to use that word again later in the show today. The, the idea of putting these details into the text, if these details had been wrong, the Christians that received these letters at first would not have kept them. Little historical details like this give authenticity to the text itself. Again, if if you received a letter from me, so I'm an LCMS pastor, and I, I include these details in, the, in my letter to you that are historically just false. Like, I just start making stuff up about random people, uh, or the government of our country, all those things that aren't true like Frank Sinatra is the 29th president of the United States. If you got a letter like that, you'd discard it. You'd consider it garbage and you'd throw it away. So such little details are an apologetics tool. They're scattered throughout the New Testament, helpful for us to know. The, the people who first received these letters viewed them with credibility. And even if you flip it around and make the case that the Christians made all this up a couple of centuries later, that really doesn't work. 
because all the, the details that we can verify are verified. There aren't details that are just made up. Or I should say there aren't details that have been proven to be false. There's historicity to this. This is good stuff. Now, I'm, I don't believe in that second line of thinking that this is all made up to start with. It's not. I mean, the earliest copies of, of these letters that we have are, are from the early second century, just within probably 30 years or so of the lifespan of the, the oldest of the apostles, John. Copies sent from church to church. So good stuff. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation to have and to strengthen our faith with, which is one of the best ways to use apologetics to strengthen your faith against the onslaught of, of this evil world that seeks to teach us that Jesus never even lived, which is just made-up gibberish. Even the, the strongest atheist scholars admit Jesus not only lived, but that he was crucified, and that it, for whatever reason, his tomb ended up empty. They can't come up with a good one there, and the Holy Spirit has not moved them to the faith of recognizing that it was because Jesus rose from the dead. So Ananias is to go find this man of Tarsus by the name of Saul. Tarsus is a city to the north. Um, as you go up to the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, you would find Tarsus right about there. Rough estimate from looking at a map, it's probably 30 to 40 miles west of that farthest east bank of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's only a few miles north of it. So Tarsus is a city right there in Asia Minor, and that's where Saul's from. Now, Ananias hears this, that he's to go there, and God has given him a vision of him coming to give him sight. And Ananias' response is worth considering. I don't know that we need to say it's fear. I don't want to accuse Ananias of being afraid here. He doesn't specifically say that. If he is afraid, it's understandable. wouldn't make it right, but it's understandable in the world's perspective. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, so here too, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This could be a response of fear. Like Ananias saying, why would you send me to this man? What, what might he do to me? The flip side, though, is that this could be Ananias not being afraid, but instead being, what would be the right word there? Almost vengeful? Not wanting something good to happen to an enemy? Consider this again, Lord. I mean, look what Saul has done, how he has persecuted your people, how he has harmed and even killed your people. You want me to do what for him? So I could see it going either way. I don't want to say that we know because there's just not enough here. Either of those things is not good. And so Ananias is going to be told by God again to go, and he's going to go. He'll listen to the Lord. He will do what the Lord has given him to do. And then we see nothing more of him after this text. But instead, the prominence is placed upon the one that he has healed, upon Saul. And that's really even how the Lord addresses Ananias with it. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Gentiles and Israel, that's everybody. So the, the way that the people of God's kingdom, Israel in the past, and they're called Jews at that point in history, the way they looked at the rest of the world was as Gentiles. The word Gentile in Greek can also be translated nation. So all the rest. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Paul's going to be sent to both of them. And he's also going to be sent to kings. 
in the book of Acts that will include Felix and Festus later on. It will also include the Roman emperor himself, the head of the heads of this earth. That one ends in his death. But he will go and he will take the gospel to all of these. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. A couple of times in the New Testament, Paul will actually list out the sufferings that he endures on account of sharing the gospel. I don't know of a better one to look at than 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As he kind of compares, measures himself against others who are, are speaking God's word to the church in Corinth. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul goes through a list of all the things that he has suffered, all the things that he ends up enduring for the name of Christ. And that list was even created before, again, his martyrdom, as he's going to be executed, and who knows however many other things he might have been able to add to the list by that time, had he written that letter later. So Ananias goes. And he finds Saul, he lays his hands on him, and he heals him, just as God gave him to do. And something like scales falls from his eyes. So even though his eyes were open, was the description from before, and yet miraculously it was as though his eyes were still shut because he could see nothing. And so something was covering them, something that apparently could not even be seen by others. Just as the others did not see Jesus speak to Saul, so they could not see whatever this was that hindered Saul's sight. But the Lord heals him, restores him, and he is baptized, and he is going to eat and become stronger, regain his strength from those three days of fasting. That brings us to the rest of verse 19 through verse 22, the end of the text for today. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. We don't know how long Paul remains in Damascus here. His history at this point of his life is a little unknown to us. I'll just leave it at that. So he, he will tell us himself in Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, that after his call by Jesus to be the one to preach the good news to the Gentiles, that he does go from Damascus to Arabia, back to Damascus again before finally three years later going to Jerusalem. So how many days does he stay here in Damascus? It could be a couple of days. That doesn't seem to fit some. So some, you know, maybe a week, couple of weeks as, as the short end of it, maybe months before he finally journeys to Arabia and then comes back to Damascus again. 
But what he does, even during these some days, is he goes to the synagogue and he starts talking about Jesus. And that's what he's going to do as his primary tactic on his missionary journeys. He's going to go to the synagogues when he gets to a new city, and he's going to show them from the Old Testament scriptures that they have how Jesus is the Savior that they've been waiting for. And he starts right there in Damascus. And the people who hear him say he is the Son of God, they're puzzled. Understandably so. And they even give it to us. It's recorded right here for us. They recognize, wait, he was causing trouble on account of this name. He was he was even come here to bind those people. And now he's now he's for them? Now he's preaching their God? It didn't make sense to them. But verse 22 ends the text. Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I said I'd come back to apologetics before this one was over. A lot of Christians today, well, there's a lot that believe apologetics are really helpful. But there's a large group of Christians today that think apologetics cannot be used for outreach. And a text like this should tell us to tap the brakes on that. It is not my argumentation, ultimately, that would convict someone, convert someone to Christianity, just as it is not my saying to someone, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, there is a better way, and Jesus has done it for you. It's not my saying of any of those things that converts someone to Christianity. It is the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Who am I to say whether the Holy Spirit will work through the law or the gospel in the life of my neighbor? Now, there are times where it is better to speak the law. There are times where it will be better to speak the gospel. And if we are studied in our our faith, if we are studied in God's word, we'll we'll be able to better do that in the spirit. but But the spirit will work through us regardless. And it is his task, it is his job to create faith, not ours. And so here, Saul is proving Jesus as Christ. It's not just an invitation. Hey, here's this God that I believe in. You can believe in him too if you want to. He's actually reasoning with them to show how Jesus is the God of this creation, of this world, our Savior. Now, Part of that, again, is primarily going to be what I shared already, that he's going to show from the Old Testament account of Scripture how Jesus is the one to fulfill all of those things. But I don't think we should skip over Saul's own conversion. As the crowds notice, what's going on here? Why the change in this man? That itself is a proof. That itself is an apologetic, a defense for the faith. He goes from a man of power to a man who's willing to suffer. He goes from persecuting Christians to being persecuted alongside of them. He goes from rich as a high-ranking Pharisee to having nothing. He goes from having the access to all that previous education that he had under Jewish leaders to, in their view, throwing it all away to go after some other god. And he's not willing to give up this new faith of his for anything, no matter what the the world brings upon him, even to the point of death. And he was at the point of death more than once, but he finally does die around 68 AD. Such a, a strong man converting from one faith to another is an apologetic. It in itself shows a, a conviction in Saul. Why would he change? 
Something must have happened. And we know Jesus, God in the flesh, revealed himself to Saul. That would be enough. That'll do it. Other such apologetics have been offered before on similar topics, like the idea that why would, why would a group of Jews abandon their Jewish faith and become Christians? Why would, why would Jews go from worshiping as they had done for thousands of years on Saturday, suddenly start worshiping on Sunday? We know because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they wanted to celebrate the Lord's Day, begin their week with worshiping and thanking God for all he's done. But such giant shifts are what we call apologetics. To know these things is a strength to our own faith, that these things really happened, that the resurrection of Christ changes everything, including us. Our second text, the epistle for the weekend, is from Revelation chapter 5. Again, verses 1 through 7 are an option. Verse 8 through 14 would be the norm. So you could read 1 through 14, which is the entire chapter at that point. And that's what we're going to do together. But before we jump in, a recognition, Revelation chapter 1, which we saw together last week, introduces us to the vision, to Jesus speaking to John and giving him this letter to give to everyone. Chapters 2 and 3 specify those seven churches that he is to write the letter to and have a message from Jesus to each of those churches specifically that all follow the same pattern. Chapter 4, we see basically creation praise God for creation, for his good work of creation. Chapter 5 in this text is then going to be praising God for his good work of salvation. So chapter 4, good work of creation. Chapter 5, good work of salvation is a helpful way to keep those um, texts not separated, but distinct. They are together, right? They are one. They are a whole. And so that's why this one starts with the word then. Well, let's just jump in. Verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the picture starts with God the Father, the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and in his hand is a scroll. It's written on the front and the back, basically. So a scroll is rolled up within is the, if you were to unroll it, it would be the surface that you're looking at. But when you roll it back up again, it's written also on the back. It's written even on the surface you can see. And that's the idea that this scroll is full. It's covered entirely. There's a full plan to it. There's no more that needs to be written. Maybe a helpful way to say it. The scroll is God's plan of salvation. And so this plan of salvation is full. It is in its completeness, which is why this is being read as an Easter text, by the way. The idea of Christ's resurrection from the dead revealing God's full plan of salvation to us now. Otherwise, we might see it better as an epiphany text where God has revealed his good news to us. But this is what today's text is about. The plan of salvation, written down, 
We might even talk about that as God's word, but this is not quite that specific. It's just God's fullness of his plan of salvation has been made known. At this point, though, in John's vision, the vision itself, it has not yet been revealed, and that's what the text is about. Instead, for now, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. That seems to have a a connection to the Roman legal process, where in their society, a, a scroll... A last will and testament, for example, would be seven times sealed, and the only ones who can open that, break those seals, are the one who administrates it or the legal heir himself. In this case, the administrator of it is God, the Father, and the one who is the legal heir is God the Son, Jesus, which is what we'll see in verse 5. But first, an angel declares who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And then we're told no one in heaven, so the angels, no one on earth, so people, created beings, and no one under the earth, whether you want to look at that as those who have already died, or even if you want to include the devil in in that picture, was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so, verse 4, John began to weep loudly that no one was worthy to open the scroll. He wants to know. He wants to know what God has sought to write down, what this plan of God's salvation is for his people. And one of the elders, that would be one of the 24 elders, the book of Revelation, 24 elders, so that would be the 12 Old Testament tribes, the sons of Israel, and the 12 New Testament apostles. Together, 12 plus 12, 24. Revelation talks about the 24 elders as the fullness of God's church. And so here we have those one of those elders saying to John, weep no more. There is one who can open it. Worthy is the lamb. That's coming up later in the text. The one who can open it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Jesus comes from Judah's line, specifically the root of David, which could connect us to the prophecy about the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse from Isaiah chapter 11. And he has already conquered So we have a picture of him in conquer here, that he is a victorious king. The lion gives us that image. David gives us that image as the conquering king of Israel in the Old Testament. He can open the scroll. Jesus will not only be compared to the lion in this text, he is in the very next verse also going to be compared to a lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, as we're going to see here. Let's go ahead and just jump into that paragraph, verses 6 and 7. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the throne, where God the Father sits, and the four living creatures who are around the throne, those are a little harder. That's one of the most confused, maybe, pictures, even among Lutherans who have the same view of the book of Revelation as a whole, one of the most difficult symbols to interpret. Some believe the four living creatures are angels. Some say it's all of creation. And others like to pair it with the Gospels. You have the four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that connection is made sometimes too. I tend to go with the angels side of this. So you have the You have God the Father between the throne of the Father and the angels, and then the church among the elders. What do we see? We see a lamb. John sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. So you get that picture, right? A a slain lamb because Jesus died on the cross, and yet that slain lamb stands. 
because he's risen from the dead. He has seven horns. Horns are a symbol of power and seven the number of perfection in the book of Revelation. So he has perfect power. He also has seven eyes. With eyes you see. So he has perfect vision. He can see everything. He sees all things. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We saw the seven spirit idea already last week, and that is seven again, perfect. So the perfect spirit of God, it's the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that sees all. The Holy Spirit, Jesus poured out upon this creation that we would have the spirit, we would have faith. And so the spirit, the spirit has given us the church. He has made us the church. And it is through the spirit, again, the Trinity here, uh, understanding how the Trinity works, but the Trinity of God is at work. Jesus sees, the Spirit sees all things. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So Jesus receives this seven-sealed scroll. Chapter 6 is going to be the starting of the opening, but we get to see the praise of God for his plan of salvation in the rest of the text, which is going to be what all the churches read from verses 8 through 14. So let's take verses 8 through 10 together first. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus takes the scroll, and as he does, everyone worships him. The angels, the uh, the church, they worship Jesus, and they hold a harp, which is a, a musical instrument used to praise God, and they also hold prayers. That's the golden bowls full of incense. The incense altar in the book of Revelation is the place for the prayers of the saints. That's revealed to us right here in this chapter and verse. Our prayers are offered up to God. And so the the praise of the church and the prayers of the church are being brought to Jesus and together angels and church alike singing this song. Worthy are you to take the scroll. So who is worthy? That's the chapter's question. Jesus is the one who is worthy. And why is he worthy is that word for. What makes him worthy? He was slain. It's his blood which is the plan of salvation that makes him worthy to open the scroll to reveal the plan of salvation to us because he's the one who's already done it. He's the one who's already won it for us. By that blood, he has ransomed a people for God. So he has bought back for the Lord a people group. That's going to be you and me included as, as well. Some of the words from this new song are recorded for us at Divine Service Setting 1, Divine Service Setting 2, in This is the Feast. You'll recognize the words likely here. Worthy is Christ, the Lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Those words that we sing, some of us sing them every week as we gather in the Lord's house, remind us of this here. I will say that of all the songs, there are specifically several songs in the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, none of them in their fullness have just been straight put to tune for us as hymns in our hymnal. 
uh, if you are a musical person, I encourage you to give that a shot. I would love to see us singing these new songs of the book of Revelation that we're going to be singing in paradise before the, the throne of the Lamb forevermore. I mean, why not start now? These are good things. So the rest of that text of the new song, he's ransomed a people for God, Jesus by his blood, from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Notice the fourfold use of those nouns. Four is the biblical number for creation, and especially in the book of Revelation. So all of creation is being brought into this new people. And that's going to be seen again in verse 10, that you have made them into a kingdom and priest to our God. Jesus saying to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It wasn't. Jesus calls us to be his. He calls us out from this world to follow him. But on the last day when Christ returns, everything else is destroyed. And this new kingdom is the only kingdom. And that's a beautiful picture for the faithful, for the saints who trust in him above all things. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, such a beautiful hope that the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth and that there will be people from all over who rejoice in creation and that we will not all look the same, but we will all speak the same. The idea of multiple languages is a part of the curse of creation. As you think of the Tower of Babel or Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the languages being separated, split, there's no reason to think that continues in paradise, that when we come back together again, when the Lord draws us all before his heavenly throne, that we will speak whatever language he gives us to speak. And that will be a joyous day indeed. So we are a kingdom and we are also priests to our God. For those words, let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter writes, You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So both the idea that we are a kingdom, a holy nation, and that we are priests, a royal priesthood, show up in that text too. So it's a helpful parallel to this. Priests are those who make sacrifices to the Lord in the Old Testament, but they're also the ones who share God's word. And so we, as the priests of the Lord, we point others in this creation to him. And we're a holy nation with the one purpose of pointing others to him, that he has called us out of darkness into his light, that we might proclaim his excellencies to those who are still in the darkness, and also to the ones who are still in the light as we encourage one another within the church too. Let's do verse 11 and 12 next here. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The word myriad in English comes actually from the Greek word behind it here. That's where we get it. It means basically 10,000. So if you've ever wondered how many angels there are, we're never told in scripture how many angels God made. This is as close as you're going to get. Myriads of myriads. So 10,000 times 10,000. And that's going to give you what? You've got four zeros behind each of those. So eight zeros. That's a hundred million. That's a big number. And 
On top of that, additionally, thousands of thousands. So even the hundred million wouldn't be all of them, there'd still be more. God's angelic army is huge. Let's just put it that way. The Lord is in control. Knowing that his angels fight for him, knowing that there are less demons, as another part of Revelation teaches, a third of the the angels fell with the devil. And that's a a symbolic number that declares that not the majority. Uh, It's a great amount. It's a significant number, but it's not the majority. There are more angels than there are demons. And when there are maybe a hundred million or more angels, you can think of this creation and its size. Those, those angels can, they can get around. They can care for creation. They can do what the Lord has sent them to do. They can fight on our behalf. But what are they doing here? They are gathered together with the other maybe high-ranking angels, the living creatures, or the gospels, however you want to take that phrase, and the elders, so the church. So the angels join in. The chorus of heavenly angels joins together with a loud voice. As you can imagine, a hundred million voices would be quite loud. And they sing essentially the same song. They also proclaim Jesus worthy because he was slain. And then they speak a sevenfold blessing upon him. Power. Power and might are both in the list. Power and might are not the same thing. Might is what we think of when we think of both of them. Usually we think of strength. the Just the sheer brute force. And he has that. But he also has power. And power is maybe best described as the, the ability to do something. The Greek word is where we get our English word dynamite from. He is able. So not just strength, but also a, the ability to do something. All wealth. I mean, he owns this creation. He made it. Everything in it is his. And so this is just recognition of that. Wisdom. He is the wisest that there is. There is none, none other. There is no wisdom apart from God. Honor. So honor is that we, we look up to him, we respect him, we appreciate what he has done for us. Glory is, again, that idea of lifting up, that, that we would look to him, and blessing. And in this case, it's the blessing of the people to God that would be a thing of thanksgiving. So we all thank him, again, for chapter 4, creation, and chapter 5, salvation, for these wondrous works of the Lord that he has done for us. That brings us to, let's just take 13 and 14 together to finish the text for the weekend. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So once again, twice, I guess, we're going to see that fourfold idea here for all of creation. So What's going to praise him in verse 13? Every, every creature, so everything God has made that lives in heaven, the earth, under the earth, or in the sea. There's not another. So this is all of creation. We'll, we'll declare this. You might even include Philippians 2 in this idea. That Philippians 2, that the day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That does not mean everyone is saved. We wish that they were, as Christians. We, we don't want to see anyone perish. Ezekiel 33, God speaks that way. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their evil way and live. But on the last day when Christ returns, even though it would be too late for repentance, everything in creation will recognize its, its Lord, its creator, its maker. 
And that's the sort of picture I think we get in verse 13 here, that they're identifying the Father and the Son, the, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And they're not speaking the sevenfold blessing. Here it's shortened four. Blessing, so the thanks. Well, actually, we get the same last three from verse 12, honor, glory, and blessing. And we also pick up might, so it's the back four. Power, wealth, and wisdom are left off. And then finally, the end of the chapter, the four living creatures. So again, you might take those as the angels. You might take them as the gospels. They declare amen. To say amen at the end of something is to join your voice to it. So if you say a prayer and then your church is around you and they say amen or your family is around you and they say amen, they're joining themselves to that prayer. You just prayed something. Maybe it was a thanksgiving and they say, yeah, we give thanks for that too. That's the picture of amen. And so the four living creatures have joined their voice now to the voice of creation in this. And then the elders fall down and worship. Again, the elders representing all of the church. The church worships the Lord as the chapter comes to its conclusion. Chapter 6 is going to then bring the breaking of those seven seals by Jesus. We conclude with our gospel text, which is from John chapter 21. Again, there's an option here. The normal reading is verses 1 through 14, the start of the chapter, but your pastor can choose to add on verses 15 through 19. You'll see a fairly distinctive break between the two sections uh, with the added-on optional text being about Simon Peter basically being reinstated, being forgiven and recommissioned by Jesus to share the good news. So let's start out with verses 1 through 3 for this resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Jesus has already revealed himself twice at this point in John's gospel to the disciples. You can think of the the first day of Easter itself where Jesus reveals himself to them. They're locked in the house, but Thomas isn't there. And then in the eighth day, so it's either the following Sunday or the Monday, Jesus appears to them again in that locked house. This time Thomas is there. That was chapter 20. That was last week's gospel reading for us. And so that's the first and second. This is now the third. Jesus reveals himself, this time by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Only John will call it this name in the scriptures. We see it called the Sea of Gennesaret once by Luke, and then three times, I believe, by John here, the Sea of Tiberias. But it is the Sea of Galilee up to the, well, not north of Israel, but the northern part on the north side of the Jordan River. This is where Jesus and the disciples spent much of their their three years together. We have seven of the disciples together. Andrew's not there, so four of them are missing. Andrew's not there. It would make sense that he would have been mentioned. Simon Peter is mentioned. The disciple whom Jesus loved is not mentioned, although he gets mentioned later in the text, so he might be one of the two others. That would be John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, if you weren't familiar with that idea. He doesn't want to refer to himself in the gospel. And so for that same reason, it would make sense for him to just be one of the two mentioned here in verse 2, not by name. Who the other one is, I guess would be anybody's guess. 
but there are seven of the eleven at this point that are gathered together. James and John are the sons of Zebedee, so we know a few of them. Simon decides he wants to go fishing, and they opt to go out with him, and so they get into the boat, and they fish all night, and they catch nothing. There are so many parallels here to Luke 5, if you did not already pick up on that. In Luke chapter 5, similar thing going on. They fished all night, they catch nothing, and then this Jesus guy shows up, and he tells them that they should let down their nets. Peter doesn't want to, but because this man of high regard in the community has said so, he's going to do it. And when he does it, the net is so filled with fish, it begins to take the boat down. And so the partner boat, which would have been the sons of Zebedee, they come over to help as well. And it's sinking both boats. And at that point, Peter uh, ends up telling Jesus to go away because he's a sinful man. Depart from me. And so this is, this is going to be bookends, really, when you think of it that way. The calling of his disciples on the boat, Jesus telling them to let down a net, and now the resurrection appearance telling them to let down the net again. And just a, a beautiful connection to make. All right, so they caught nothing that night as they went out fishing. Just like in Luke chapter 5, they had caught nothing. Verses 4 through 8, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So you can picture, they've fished all night, they've worked all night, they've labored fruitlessly for hours, and then Jesus shows up on the seashore. They don't recognize him. Jesus has that habit, like the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. God prevents it for a a moment. They don't recognize him here yet. He calls out, do you have any fish? That he calls them children might be helpful at reminding us that these are not old men. Oftentimes when you see pictures of the apostles gathered together with Jesus, like the, the Lord's Supper, the famous portrait of the Last Supper, you see them as like, all grown men. More than likely, most of these guys are teenagers or in their early 20s, and Peter is the only one that we know for certain was married, so he might have been in his mid-20s, late 20s maybe. That seems to be why he, by the way, takes the leadership role among them. He might be the oldest among them. He might be the elder of the group. Jesus calls them children. Now, in fairness, if they were older, he could call them children because he is God, Uh, Although as Jesus, he would refer to us as brother, Uh, he would refer to us as bride, not necessarily from the fatherly perspective. So I would argue here, just taking it again, as these are being fairly young men that are gathered together. So as he did before, he encourages them to cast that net, and they do, and when they do, they can't even bring it in because there's too many fish. So the, the net is, is filled, and we're going to learn in the next paragraph how many fish they caught. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which again is John, doesn't want to identify himself. He wants the focus to be on Jesus, not on him. It is the Lord. And so when he declares that, Simon Peter 
Simon should have been the first one to recognize this. He Again, John was there too, James and John, along with Simon and Andrew and Luke 5. Peter should have identified it too, but he he needs John's encouragement here. And so he puts on his outer garment, we, we read. This would be like, you know, you're working a messy job, and so you take off your, your outer layer. Um, or in the case of men on the sea, you could easily see him taking off a shirt or something like that. They didn't dress quite like we do, but you get the picture. He takes he had taken that garment off to work, and now he's going to put it back on himself and then plunge into the sea to swim to shore. And so he comes to Jesus. The other disciples finally manage to drag the net behind him, and they make it to land as well. A hundred yards off, we're told. So John's going to give us a couple of details in the text, some numbers-related things. And I don't actually know why he gives us either of them, other than, again, the the importance of just giving small details gives the story some historicity. It gives it gives it that groundedness, that rootedness in reality, rather than just being some made-up fable. 153 fish. That's the number. Is there some symbolism to it? I don't think we should read it that way. Again, just a, just a grounding in the facts of a story. Verse 9 through 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Actually, we've covered most of this paragraph together already. So Jesus is on the shore. He's made a fire. And on that fire, he already has some fish. Now they have a whole bunch more. And he's invited them to bring their fish Add it to his. Maybe if we're trying to see some symbolism in this, the reminder that Jesus has called them to become fishers of men. It's connected again that Luke 5 text. And so Jesus has some fish, a reference maybe to the disciples that he has caught with his word and his earthly ministry. But now they are to go out. They are to share the good news. And they are fishers of men and they will catch even more. 153 fish is more than the fish that were already laid on the fire. So the disciples are the small number. The church is the bigger number. That would be a symbolic way to look at the numbers, but again, don't take that and discard the history. Even if that is a true reality, the the history is, is here, and John gives it to us for a reason. 153, just a historic detail, a reality of the moment. Now, with so many fish, the net was not torn. So the Lord has protected, the Lord has preserved their, their ships from sinking, just as he did in Luke 5, but now also the care for their, their tool that they use. And again, symbolically, we can like that. Historically, it's real, but it adds that layer symbolically as well, the idea that what we fish with is the word of God. And that no matter how many we catch with that net, no matter how many we catch by his word, the word, will, it will not be destroyed. Um, the, the word can keep on preaching, keep on teaching, just as they could now take this net out again and use it again. Jesus invites them to eat with him, and they don't bother to ask who he is because they know. They've recognized, even though they can't, it still seems like they, they have this veil where they can't recognize him as Jesus. They have recognized still that he is the Lord because of the action 
because of the connection to their history in Luke 5. Jesus comes, he takes bread, he gives it to them. You might notice there's a bit of a similarity there to the Lord's Supper as he takes bread and gives it to his disciples. And he does so with the fish as well. This could also connect to the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus revealed to his disciples for the third time after being raised from the dead. Talked about that at the start of the text. Day one, day eight, disciples locked in the house for fear of the Jews. Those are the first two. A lot of our churches may end there, but we do have the optional paragraph 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So this pairs us to the Luke 22 account of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus on the the day of the crucifixion, the, the trial in that morning, or overnight really, from Monday Thursday into Good Friday morning. You've got the the young girl who asks him if he's a follower of Jesus. You've got the conversation about, aren't you a Galilean? Your accent betrays you. Those things. Three times he's accused of being with Jesus. Three times he denies it. Then the rooster crows. So has he denied Jesus three times. Now Jesus matches that with a threefold reinstatement, a threefold commissioning of Simon Peter. So he asks if he loves him more than these. I'm going to take that these reference. It's masculine plural in the Greek as probably being to the other disciples. So, do you love me more than these? You could either then read that as, do you love me more than this world, your relationships in this world, or you could even take it to be uh, Jesus asking if Peter, if Peter's love for him is greater than the other disciples' love for Jesus is. I don't know if I want to take it that way comparatively here, but rather, I'm going to read it as Peter loving Jesus more than he loves the things of this world. That Peter would be willing to give up the things of this life in order to serve Jesus. And Peter says yes to that. You know that I love you. And so Jesus is going to then orient Peter not to the things of this world, but to care for his church. I'm not going to put much into the three different ways Jesus phrases that. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then finally feed my sheep care for the flock, care for the people of God, serve the church. All that's the same kind of statement. And so Jesus commands him three times to do this. The third time, Peter gets upset about it. He's grieved that Jesus has to say this to him. But again, he denied Jesus three times. Could Jesus one and done have forgiven it? Yes. This is probably done threefold then for Peter's own benefit, that he would recognize this on his own at some point that God has given him this commission, that he is, I'm not going to say worthy, 
because he's denied the Christ, but he's forgiven, he's restored, and God has sent him to do this work. Lastly, then, verse 18 and 19, Jesus, who says truly, truly 25 times in the book of John, he's going to use this picture of young and old. When Peter was young, which he is even at this moment of the text, he's able to dress himself, he's able to do what he wants, go where he wants. But in his old age, that won't be the case. In fact, somebody else will dress him, and his hands are going to be stretched out, and he's going to be crucified to indicate what kind of death he was going to die by which he would glorify God. He would point others to Jesus even in his death. And if I recall correctly, the tradition around Peter is he did not wish to be killed. He did not see himself as deserving even to die the same way of his Lord. And so he asked them to crucify him upside down. Um, So again, pointing to Christ, even in the moment of his death, that the soldiers who kill him would hear that confession of Peter's faith. And Jesus says, follow me. It's a good way to end it, as that is the call that you and I also have, is that we would love the Lord more than all the things of this world, and that we would care for one another, and that we would be fishers of men. Amen.